Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here, and you're just moments away from today's episode of The Bridge, where we're going to ask this question. The Great Arctic Ice Melt, do you even care, and why you should? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with the latest episode of The Bridge. Let me start by asking you a question. It's not hard. It's an easy question. Raise your hands if you know who Louis Saint-Laurent was. Of course, you know. He was the Canadian Prime Minister. You know which Prime Minister he was, numerically in order? Probably not. But he was 12th, okay? He was number 12. He came in in 1948, replacing Mackenzie King, who had stepped down. And Louis Saint-Laurent was Prime Minister for the next nine years, till 1957, when he lost in an election to John Diefenbaker. So, not long after, Saint-Laurent was replaced as Liberal leader by Lester Pearson. And that kind of sets you up under the track as to where we are now, in terms of the different Prime Ministers that have encompassed the last 60, 70 years. All right, why am I telling you this? This isn't a history lesson. But Louis Saint-Laurent is an interesting person in terms of the topic we're going to discuss today. Louis Saint-Laurent's political history is not generally well known. He wasn't a failure. He was a pretty good prime minister. And he was well regarded as a great Canadian nationalist. But you don't look around and see his name mentioned in too many places these days, right? There is one, though. His name is painted on the side of Canada's greatest icebreaker, the Louis Saint-Laurent, which plies the waters of Canada's Arctic. Has done since the mid-1960s. It's kind of a historic vessel in terms of Arctic voyages. Now, if you got on board the Louis Saint-Laurent and you kind of looked around, you'd find tucked away in one corner a little plaque on the wall with my name on it. And that's because in 2006, when I was at the CBC, we did some historic broadcasting. We broadcast live going through the Northwest Passage. We did the National live each night for a week. It was a pretty big deal. So there was a plaque made, and it's on board the Louis Saint Laurent. Let me tell you just a couple of things about that. We did that week of broadcasting. Because we'd been convinced we're living in an era of a changing Arctic as a result of climate change and global warming and all of that. So we did these broadcasts. And I'm telling you, that that was not an easy thing to accomplish. Back in 2006, it'd be a lot easier now with the advances in technology. But back in 2006, the only way we could do this, given the fact we were so far north, we started in, in Resolute. If you look at a map and look up at Resolute, we crossed Lancaster Sound. We went down through the uh, um, different variety of waterways that track us on the Northwest Passage. But to hook up our signal to the CBC, to the Toronto Broadcasting Centre, that took a bit of a challenge because we were so far north and because of the angle of satellite dishes and all that. I'm not going to get too technical here, but let me just tell you, it was a trick. And we had a couple of guys from Raja Canada, 
who were with us, who were the satellite experts, and they had parked their satellite dish on the back end, around the, where the helicopter pad is, on the back of the Louis Saint And we're literally, as we were on the air, as we were on the air, we're literally, with their hands on either side of that dish, moving it a tiny little bit as we were moving. Obviously, it's a ship, it was moving, it was cutting through some ice at some point. But that's how we kept our signal up. And occasionally we'd lose the signal, but fortunately it'd be in the middle of an item that I'd introduced. And so we were able to reestablish before the item ended. But it was a trick. And it was, you know, as it turned out, it was great fun. It was a lot of stress, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, I think Canadians enjoyed it. got their first glimpse of what was happening in terms of the changing nature of the Arctic. I can remember that first night because... You know, I've been to the Arctic many times. I kind of started in Canada's north when I was with Transair, a small regional airline out of northern Manitoba, servicing uh, lots of different northern communities, and all the way up to what were then the Dewline stations at uh, Eureka and Isaacson and Mole Bay. I went up to all of those. So I'd seen the Arctic from my days at Transair and also from my early days at the CBC because I started in Churchill, Manitoba, in the late 1960s. So, I'd seen the incredible ice conditions in Canada's Arctic. And being told, hey, things are changing. I needed to be convinced. And that trip on board the Louis S. Saint Laurent certainly convinced me. Because if I'd gone on the Louis in the late 60s or 70s, cutting through the ice of... Uh, those different areas, you know, you were cutting through ice that was 20, 25 feet feet thick, and it was a tough slog, and sometimes you just couldn't do it. Suddenly, not suddenly, but eventually in 2006, when we got there and we're doing this story, we were cutting through ice. It was still thick, but it was like five or six feet thick. And for the Louis S. Saint Laurent, that was like cutting through butter. So we were seeing firsthand, up close, the changing nature of the Arctic and the impact that climate change was having on it. That was 15 years ago. Well, things have changed considerably in those 15 years. To the point at which, and you may have heard this, there's so much news been going on in our 24-7 world that this could easily have escaped you over the last week or two. But there have been a number of new reports, scientific reports, on the ice melt, not just in the Arctic, but in Antarctica as well, and the impact that that's having. Let me give you the headlines on that story, because that's what today's program is all about, is the Arctic ice melt, and one, whether you should even care, why you should care. So let's talk about that. Here are the headlines from the latest report. They've, doing, they've been doing satellite imagery since 1994. And that imagery has revealed over 28 trillion tons of ice have melted in Greenland and Antarctica, as well as the Arctic and Southern Oceans. So that sort of captures it all. Now, these stats have all been published in the last couple of weeks, and they've been kind of the headlines in every you know, scientific periodical magazine, online base, 
that you can find. But so 28 trillion tons of ice, that sounds like a lot of ice. It is a lot of ice. But how, what does it mean? Like, how much ice is that? Well, here's the way they break it down. That loss, 28 trillion tons, amounts to a 100-meter-thick sheet of ice. Okay, a, a sheet of ice as thick as, you know, roughly a football field. The covering, covering the United Kingdom. Okay, that's how big the sheet of ice would be. First of all, 100 meters thick and large enough to cover all of the United Kingdom. That's one stat that's worth knowing. Now, over the course of the 23-year-long study, right, since 1997, researchers have seen close to a 60% increase in the rate of global ice loss. So in other words, back in 97, it was such and such. Now it goes up and up and up in terms of faster rate of loss, consistently, year to year to year. Just last year, this is according to um, sciencealert.com, just last year, floating ice cover in the Arctic Ocean hit its lowest extent since 1979, when satellite recordings began and Antarctica experienced a melt event unlike anything experts had ever seen before. One more fact. For every centimeter of sea level rise, because obviously it's having an impact, the ice melts, the sea goes up. We'll get into this in a little bit more detail in a moment. For every centimeter of sea level rise, experts predict a million people are in danger of being displaced. A million. What's more, mountain glaciers are a critical source of fresh water for many local communities. Okay, those are some of the basic facts about this story that's emerged in the last couple of weeks. But for a lot of different reasons, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are issues about the vaccines. There are issues about the delivery system. There are issues about travel. There's also the spectacle that continues to play out south of the border in Washington with the new administration of Joe Biden and the impeachment of the last president, Donald J. Trump. And these all crowd the news. And they tend to move out things that, you know, perhaps we should spend a little more time thinking about and talking about. And that's the idea here with this. So there are any number of different people, Canadians, many of them, who we could reach out and talk to. But today I chose, you know, a relatively young fella who teaches at uh, St. Evex in Atlantic Canada. Adam Lajeunesse, he's the uh, Irving Shipbuilding Chair in Canadian Arctic Marine Security Policy and an Assistant Professor at the Mulroney Institute of Government at St. Francis Xavier University. He's the author of a couple of books, including Lock, Stock, and Icebergs. And remember that name. It's going to come up in this discussion, I'm sure, that we're going to have with him as well as a number of other books and papers. But uh, Adam was the guy I wanted to talk to in terms of trying to understand what we should make 
of all this. So let's get it started. So, Professor, if I'm sitting in my home, say, in Calgary or St. John's or wherever it may be, and I hear all these, like, incredible statistics about the amount of ice that's been melting and continues to melt, um, why should I care? Well, the global ramifications of the Arctic ice melting are fairly obvious. And this is something that scientists and politicians now have been talking about for years, if not decades. Naturally, this ice is a store of much of the world's water. And if it melts into the world's oceans, then you are going to start to see global sea level rise. You are going to start to see port cities and coastal areas being inundated. From a more regional perspective, however, you're also going to see the emergence if a new uh, region of the world for global trade and for international competition. Historically, the Arctic has always been at the back of people's minds. It's never really been a serious concern economically or even geopolitically. This is a region that armies cannot pass through, which ships cannot sail through. And now all of a sudden we are looking at a very real future where the great powers can move ships in and out of the Arctic Ocean, where the polar basin or perhaps some of the Arctic channels will emerge as sea routes. At the very least, what we're seeing is increased activity, economic activity, tourism, fisheries taking place in the Canadian Arctic and elsewhere. And with that activity comes danger, comes opportunity, and, of course, security threats. All right. Well, let me back you up a little bit because, you know, we have, as you said, they, you know, we've been warned about this for years, decades, uh, that this could be coming. Um, and every year we see these incredible numbers in terms of the melt. But when is all this going to happen? Or when could it happen? I assume it, to a degree it's happening now. But when could it be happening to such an extent that it will affect all those things that you just mentioned? Well, it is happening right now, as you said. I don't want to put a precise date on that, however, because this is not a predictable pattern. Ice levels vary dramatically from year to year. One year, the Northwest Passage will be open, and they will have sailing ships moving through. Uh, The next year, it will be plugged full of ice. So it's not a consistent pattern. It's not a straight line down. But that general variation is is predictable that we know that over time ice levels are going to decrease now whether that is 2050 or 2070 or 2035 depends a lot on uh, how rapidly global warming accelerates and of course it also depends on outside factors like shipping companies deciding they want to take those risks that they want to move through the arctic So it's unpredictable. We can't say when it's going to happen, um, but we do know that it's probably inevitable. Is there a red line, though, where once you pass it, it is definitely inevitable? Or is is there something that could be done now to stop it? I mean, obviously, the global warming issue, climate change issue is a big one on the international agenda, even more so now that there's been a change in administrations in the United States. But is there something that could be done? Is there a red line that says, you know, if we haven't done anything by now, we're locked in. It's going to happen. Well, ice dynamics aren't exactly my specialty. But I can tell you that the really dangerous thing for ships operating the Arctic is what's called multi-year ice. 
it's ice that has been in the Arctic for multiple years, and every year it gets harder and harder and thicker to the point that it has the, the density of concrete, essentially. So this is the stuff that really damages ships. This is what makes moving through the Arctic so difficult. Now, once you have the Arctic warming to the point where that multi-year ice is gone, that is when shipping through the Arctic becomes much easier. Now, obviously, the reason the region will freeze over every year, that's inevitable, of course, uh, unless the Earth's axis changes, the Arctic will freeze, but that, Ar that Arctic ice will, will form, melt, and then reform every year, and the multi-year ice will be gone. So even in the winter, what you're going to be looking at is much thinner ice that even ice-strengthened ships or light icebreakers could theoretically move through. Part of this story uh, revolves around one of the areas that, that, that you're obviously interested in. That's the security and the, the politics of it, really. And when you focus on the Arctic, it, one of the questions becomes who owns it, like who owns the Arctic. And, and, and that continues to play out at various, you know, polar conferences <clears throat> and, uh, and discussion tables uh, in different parts of the world. Are we closer to resolving that, or is that a real uh, point of um, uh, not only question, but uh, potential conflict? No, I think the conflict over ownership um, theme, which has been running in Canadian academic and media circles for at least 20 years now, really is overblown. And Canadians need to understand is there is very, very little in the Arctic uh, where ownership is contested or up for grabs. So in terms of territory, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I think there's literally one square mile of uh, territory which is not settled, and that's Hans Island uh, in the in the middle of Narra Strait between um, Canada and Greenland. One square it's, mile out of what it is, is, it is millions one of square, square mile. miles. It is not a particularly valuable island, and both countries have sort of let that. We've agreed to disagree. Um, in terms of the maritime space, we are largely in agreement across the circumpolar Arctic over who has jurisdiction over what continental shelf. There's a small disagreement with the Americans north of the Yukon, but that disagreement has existed since the 1950s. No one has any real urgency to, to settle that. And then, of course, there's the future a potential disagreement over extended continental shelves running out towards the North Pole and beyond. So that is a lengthy process, which Canada, Denmark, Greenland, and Russia are currently uh, working through to try and see who has jurisdiction, not ownership, but jurisdiction over the subsea resources there. And that's actually moving through the process, the legal process, um, fairly reliably at present and that really isn't going to come to a head probably for at least a decade or two because that's the speed at which this process moves what about the issue of uh, you know who owns the waterways or who has jurisdiction over the waterways and i you know i, th I think of the northwest passage because you know we always talk about it but i you know i can recall that that great story of i think it was mulrooney and reagan you know, looking at a globe together in the, in the prime minister's office in Ottawa during one of Reagan's visits to Ottawa in the early 80s. And somehow they ended up pointing to uh, the Northwest Passage or that area. And, and Reagan talked about, well, you know, we can move our, uh, you know, our, our, our ships through here, our submarines or whatever. Um, and 
And Mulroney said, no, 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 wait a minute. That's ours. We own that. Like, that is part of Canada. And it seems to me that that's, ne you know, there, there are definitely Americans who believe that's not the case. That if they want to sail through there, they'll sail through there. And there are and there are more than that, I think Russians too. I mean, Russian cruise ships and, and that have, have used those waterways. I think they've asked permission, first of all. But there is this kind of assumption that, you know, it's an international waterway. We want to use it, we use it. Where are we on that? Well, that dispute, if you can call it a dispute, has not really moved in its essentials since it crystallized in the 1950s. And so for 70-odd years, give or take, we have largely agreed to disagree with the Americans. The Canadian position is that these waters are what are called historic internal waters, which means they are every bit as Canadian as the water running beneath Parliament Hill. We have absolute sovereignty, whereas the Americans recognize our sovereignty over the territorial sea, but say that an international sea route exists through the waters through which they could send ships or warships if they desired. Now, that's not just an American position. In fact, there's other countries around the world, the Germans, for instance, who maintain that same position. And that is a long-standing dispute. Now, Canada has a very good legal claim to those waters based on a number of different uh, foundations. But the reality is this is not an active dispute. No one is really fighting over this. And we don't really expect, certainly the Biden administration, to try and pick a fight over this. Looking back historically, the Americans have sent hundreds, if not thousands of ships through the Northwest Passage since the 1950s. But it has always been managed very carefully in an effort to not um, raise this issue and to not kick up a political or a legal fight. Even during the Cold War, the Americans have sent submarines through the Northwest Passage, uh, seven or eight by my count, actually. And those were always undertaken, those missions, with Canadian knowledge, often with Canadian observers on board, often to test Canadian sensor systems in the Northwest Passage, and they were managed through joint defense um, uh, organizations like the Permanent Joint Board of Defense. So if you look back, there is this consistent theme where the two governments recognize that they disagree on fundamental principles of international law but neither one really wants to get into a fight. And so both sides have bent over backwards to accommodate the other and to make sure that we can work together and cooperate in the Arctic without getting into that legal fight, like we did with Brian Mulroney. And I think the direct quote was, uh, Ron, we own that lock, stock, and icebergs, <laughs> pointing to that globe. It's actually the title of my first book. There you go. Um well, to bring it back to where we started in terms of the ice melt, because you did uh, suggests to us that this opens up the door to a lot of different discussions on the movement, trade movement, could be oil, could be basic trade materials, a shorter route, the original idea of the Northwest Passage, right? And and why the explorers were looking for it for hundreds of years. Um, does, is that a, when you're talking about politics and security, is that more of an issue uh, in terms of what could result from this melt? It's possible. We're certainly seeing a lot more shipping moving through uh, cruise ships. Just over the last, um, I guess, six years now, we've seen three 
large, large cruise ships with uh, up to uh, 1,000 to 1,500 people go through the Northwest Passage, which 20 years ago would have been absolutely unprecedented. I was aboard two of them. Uh, the first voyage, they had to geek north to find ice because, of course, the passengers wanted to see ice and they had to move north in the Beaufort Sea just looking for ice. Um, it, it had uh, declined to such an extent. So you do have a lot of these new industries. You have fisheries that are growing and potentially significantly as fish migrate north following warming waters. The Northwest Passage, though, is unlikely to emerge as the kind of international sea route that it's sometimes touted as being. To begin with, it's poorly charted relative to some of the other Arctic areas, and it's also very shallow and very narrow. So the Northwest Passage is unlikely to easily accommodate the kinds of large cargo or crude carrying ships which would be able to sail north of Russia or through the polar basin in the event that the ice across the Arctic were to melt. So ultimately, shipping will increase in the Northwest Passage. We're going to see, and we are seeing more activity, but most of that is going to be to and from Canadian sites, resupply, mine site resupply, or export. The international shipping, some of that might take place, but honestly, I don't think the Canadian Arctic is going to emerge as the next Panama Canal. Um, this has been fascinating. I, this has been a, a real history lesson, I think, and a, a current lesson for a lot of people. I've done that trip through the Northwest Passage too, like you've done on cruise ships. I've done, I did it on an icebreaker, and it's spectacular. You know, it, it's one of those times where you, you go through something and you say, "God, if only all Canadians could see this in real real time," because it is a spectacular uh, trip. But as a last question to you, what um, on this issue? that's spurred as a result of the melt. What, what do you worry about most? Well, that's a very good question. Um, one of the biggest worries from a practical consideration is disaster response. I think the headlines are normally going to be, if you read the papers, it's Russian militarization or sovereignty. Well, not really. The most likely security scenario that Canada has to face in the North is this emerging shipping and uncharted waters resulting in a cruise ship grounding, or it results in a, a disaster like an oil spill or, or something that we are not able to respond to because, of course, our response assets in the North are minimal. We've been building them up over the last decade or two, but they're still very minimal. There are no deep water ports along the Northwest Passage. We have very little capacity to respond to oil spills. Our search and rescue capacity is very limited. You know, we train for a cruise ship of a thousand people grounding, but there's still no obvious answer uh, for what we do there. I can tell you aboard one of these ships, the, the, the vessel stopped in Lancaster Sound for about uh, an hour uh, watching a polar bear on the ice. Maybe it was more than an hour, several hours. And uh, the Department of Transport actually called them and said, are you okay? You stopped for quite a while now. We're worried about you. Are you all right? Like, no, we're just watching a polar bear. And so they're, they're very concerned and perhaps with good reason. Um, so, we're seeing that shipping, we're seeing that activity. What comes next has to be the capacity to not just police and monitor it, but assist it if necessary. 
I'm going to leave it uh, at that for this discussion. It's uh, been fabulous, and we really appreciate your time and your expertise and knowledge on this issue. Thanks very much, Adam. Well, it's a pleasure being with you, Peter. And there was Assistant Professor Adam Lajeunesse from uh, St. FX in the Maritimes. Great to talk to him and great insight from him about what this melt is really all about. All right, more to come, including a personal anecdote about why Arctic history can be a guide to the future. So I've traveled uh, more than a few times to the Arctic, and uh, whenever I have, I've tried to spend time talking to, um, especially Inuit elders, about some of the Inuit oral history and what we can learn from that. And we learned through the search for the Franklin ships that the Inuit, in the history that had been handed down to them generation after generation, was pretty, pretty good, pretty accurate as it turned out. And both ships were found in some ways because of the history that had been told generation to generation by the Inuit. Here's another example. I was in Clyde River, north of Baffin Island, on the northern edge of Baffin Island. And I was trying to understand this change that was going on in the, uh, in the climate and in the Arctic. And I went to sea with a, with a fella, an old elderly um, hunter and fisherman. Uh, in his boat, we went out, and that's the picture, actually, on the, the cover art for, uh, if you're looking at this in terms of a podcast today. Um, that's the two of us going out by an iceberg. And while the iceberg is very dominant in the picture, the discussion we were having wasn't that about that at all. This was 2006, 2007, in that area. He was telling me that he'd been hunting and fishing these areas for decades, and now, suddenly, he was seeing fish he'd never seen before. This goes back to something the professor was saying. The water's getting warmer. Fish are moving further north. And he was seeing it. So he was seeing fish he'd never seen before. He was seeing bird life he'd never seen before. That was checking the box for him on this whole issue of climate change and a changing nature of the Arctic. So history can sometimes be told not on just a thermometer or by satellite imagery, but by the people on the ground, especially those who have, like, real experience. Coming up, let you know, uh, tomorrow we got a special guest on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. When he joins us, we're going to talk to uh, Ambassador Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador at the United Nations. Lots to talk about with Ambassador Ray. That should be fascinating. Looking forward to having that discussion. Later in the week, of course, on Thursday, it's kind of potpourri day where we try to catch up on a lot of different things that I've noticed in the last week uh, that are worth talking about, which aren't getting a lot of play. And on Friday, it's your day. It's the weekend special, we've been calling it for the last year or so, where we get a chance to listen to your thoughts and comments and questions through the emails that you send. So don't be shy. Send them along to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been The Bridge. 
Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.